shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Morning. Good to see everybody. Glad you made it through the cold. I'm told that the uh, jaundiced appearance of our slides is actually due to a cable getting so cold that it doesn't work anymore. So it's pretty cold. Um, our subject this morning and for the next seven weeks is the subject of personal transformation. And it's obviously not an, an accident or, or a coincidence that we're talking about this subject at this time of year. This is the season of personal transformation. December is the season of indulgence. You know, you just do it anyway because it's the year end and this is who I am for this year, so I'm not going to change it at this point. Might as well just kind of go along with it. And then January comes along, and it's a new year and a fresh start, and you think you can kind of start over and be a, be a different person. Maybe I'd like to change. Maybe I'd like to be somebody else in this new year. All the gym advertisements say a, a new you for the new year, new year, new you, that sort of thing. And this is kind of universal. I mean, everybody wants to change. I've never met somebody that says, no, you know, I pretty much like myself just the way I am. There's no upgrades or improvements necessary. Everybody wants to change. Not only does everybody want to change, but more than that, in addition to that, everybody kind of feels that they should. There's this sense of moral obligation to change some of the things that are wrong with you. I brought with me that January issue of Real Simple Magazine. My wife tells me this is a women's magazine. I'm not so sure myself, but... Um, the, the cover is How to Break Your Bad Habits for January. And the reason I'm interested in this is, is it's how to break your bad habits. Bad is a pretty strong word. It's a pretty morally loaded term. And that's what we call them, bad habits. Not just old habits, but bad habits. These aren't just things that you don't like. They're things that are wrong with you. They're things that you know should change. That you owe it to yourself. You owe it to your friends. You owe it to your family, your wife, your kids, your husband. You owe it to your coworkers to change, to become a better person, to improve. Not just something you like to do, but something you feel morally obligated to do. And it's universal. It's part of being human is knowing I'm not who I should be, I'm not who I could be, and that's not really okay. I need to do something about that. So being the inventive species that we are, we've come up for, with a tool for this problem. This is the ubiquitous resolution New Year's resolution. This is the, the gadget. Everybody knows if you want to change, there's a tool for it. Uh, there's, you go and you get a, a resolution. That's what you use. That's the tool for the job if you want to transform, if you want to become a, a different person. And the reason they're so popular is because they're, they're pretty easy, straightforward. There's not a big learning curve learning how to use the resolution. You just say, you know, say you want to stop smoking. 
you just you just say on January 1st or, or January 15th or whatever your, your chosen date is, um, I resolve, and it doesn't have to be I resolve, it's not like a magic incantation, but that's traditional. Um, I resolve that I will never take a puff of a cigarette again. It's done. Got your resolution. Got it right there. You can write it on a piece of paper, you know, whisper it in your mind, email it to a friend, whatever you want. That's the nice thing about resolutions. They can take all these different, you can put your own personal twist on it. You got your resolution, and all you have to do at that point is hold on to it. You just have to keep it. You have to keep your resolution, and then you can be a different person. So do they work? Do resolutions work? The answer is uh, yes, kind of. I brought also with me the the front page from last week's Sunday Review section of the Times, Be It Resolved, and it's got a picture here of a scale with the needle bending back toward a lower weight. Um, And what the article says is resolutions kind of do work in a lot of instances, especially if you um, trade in your low-grade model for kind of a high-tech luxury resolution. There's now websites where you can go and register your resolution and sign up to get a referee to monitor it. And you can even put your credit card number in, so you have to pay a penalty if you break it. So it's kind of souped up. And, and predictably, those resolutions work even better than the low-grade model. They're you know, even more effective. But the article says even, even the kind of standard resolutions, they, they work. I mean, people routinely keep the resolutions. So pe- people use this tool because it kind of works with two major caveats, two major things wrong with resolutions. First thing wrong with resolutions is that they work pretty well in the short term and they have a lot more difficult time being effective over the long term. So you can keep, you know, everybody can keep a resolution for a week. Some people can keep it for a month or a couple months or six months. But then what about after that? What about, you know, the next year and the following year? And they, the example I have to use here, and I know nobody wants me to, but because this is where all the research is, is in this example of, of losing weight. Um, so every every year, you know, a dozen new big diet books come out, and they all sell a bunch of copies. And the reason is they they pretty much all work. You know, anybody can lose weight. It's not rocket science. You just put your mind to it, and the pounds fall off. What turns out to be almost humanly impossible, we now know, is keeping weight off for five, six, seven years. You say, what do you mean humanly impossible? I mean, nobody can do it. All the studies show, we're talking about 5, 10, 15% of people, this very select group, and researchers still don't know what they have that, that everybody else doesn't. Nobody can do it. Nobody, everybody can lose weight. Nobody can keep it off. Why? We think, we think okay, I'm going to resolve. I'm going to set my course in this direction, and after a while, it's going to become habitual. But as it turns out, really, so your, your autopilot's going in this direction. And a resolution is saying, I'm going to change. I'm going to go a different way. I'm going to turn. I'm going to manually take over and go like this. And you hold it, and you hold it, and you hold it. And you think after a while, it's just going to start going that way automatically. And what happens is you just get tireder and tireder and tireder and tireder. And eventually, you go back to, to autopilot. So first thing wrong with resolutions is they work pretty well for the short term. Willpower is really good at short term. Not so good at long term. The second major caveat, the second major shortcoming of resolutions is that they work pretty well for small specific things. They work not so well for bigger, more general things. So going back to this real simple cover, this list here, how to break your bad habits. So it's got lose weight faster, clear the clutter, learn to say no, re-energize your style, and 
be happier now. Now, one of these things is not like the other. I mean, re-energize your style, I get. Clear the clutter, okay, maybe that's possible. And be happier now. Oh, and by the way, be happier now. And how do you resolve to do that? How do you resolve to be happier? I mean, let's say that's a problem. Let's say you're sad. Let's say you're depressed. Is that something you can just resolve your way out of? It's kind of a big general problem. It doesn't really lend itself very well to resolutions. It's kind of this way with any type of major character defect. You know, let's say you're afraid. You just resolve to stop being afraid. Let's say you've got a, a temper or that you're you know, really self-absorbed or that you drink too much or that you, you know, don't listen, ignore relational problems. Can you just resolve your way out of that? Is that something that really lends itself to resolutions? Not exactly. It's kind of too big. It's kind of too general. It doesn't, and, and that, if that is the case, if resolutions don't work for those kind of problems, then it, it's questionable how much value they really have. So to take a case study um, that would, would show the, both weaknesses at the same time, let's take something important, like let's say you want to be a better parent in the new year. You say, I, wanna, I resolve to spend more time with my kids in 2012 than I did in 2011. So both problem, let's watch both problems work. First problem, good at the short term, not good at the long term. That may work for a month or two months or three months, but eventually whatever it was that was causing you to not spend as much time with your kids as you wanted to last year, it's going to take back over. And then this, this other problem about being good at specific things but not general things, what good is it if you spend more time with your kids but you're distracted the whole time or you're irritable or you don't listen or you're impatient? What good is it, really? What, what does that resolution matter at that point? And if you can't fix those things, then, then how good is the resolution in the end? So resolutions work in some cases, but they've got these major shortcomings. And both of those shortcomings are kind of two ways of saying the same thing, which is the resolutions can scratch the surface of our actions at this service level, but they can't drill down to the core of who we are. And you say, well, what's that? What's the core of who we are? I mean, isn't every person just the sum of all their actions? And the answer to that is no. That's, that's one view of, of human nature. That's not the view the Bible takes. One view of human nature is that people are just the sum of their actions, and to change your life, you just have to change what you do. You just have to make different choices, and it's that simple. The Bible takes a different view. The Bible says there's a real you down there that you can't see. There's an inner you. There's an inner self and you can't access it, you can't really even understand it, but it determines everything about you. If you look on the back of your program at this first verse, this is Jesus talking in the Gospel of Luke, and he uses a agricultural metaphor, horticultural, I guess. He says, a good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. A tree is identified by its fruit, Figs are never gathered from thorn bushes, and grapes are not picked from bramble bushes. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. Your heart. That's the word that the Bible uses most often to talk about this core, this deepest you, your heart. It says everything you do comes out of it, flows out of it. It starts in your heart. You can't, it's not as simple as just changing your actions. It's not as simple as just deciding to do something different. I'm going to be a different me in the new year. It's not that simple because you 
is down somewhere where you can't even see it. It's some, something you can't even touch, something you can't get your hands on, which makes change really tricky. It's one thing to know that there is an inner you, but it's something else entirely to try to understand it and unpack it and get at it. And what anybody who has spent any time kind of delving into the depths of the, the inner world will tell you is that it is astonishingly complex and subtle and even deceptive. If you look at the, the next verse on your outline, this is from Jeremiah 17, right below where we just were. The author says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it. Anybody that's really tried to understand themselves has come away feeling somewhat disillusioned. Feeling like, why well, I can try to understand my passions and my drives and my motives, but I get pretty mixed up pretty quickly. It's pretty difficult to see with any sort of clarity. So this is, of course, you know, you're waiting for this moment. This is where God comes in. This is where God comes in the picture. If my heart is kind of the cause of everything about me, if all my actions come from my heart, and I can't even get at my heart, I need somebody who can. If the only way I can really change is to change my heart, but my heart is beyond my own understanding, if it's too deep for me, then the only way I can really change is to invite God into my life, invite him to help me change. And this is what the psalmist pray. This is what all spiritual people pray. This next verse on your program from Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Or another psalm, Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. They're saying, God, you do it. You do it. Because I don't understand it. I can't see it. I don't understand what's going on down there so I need you to shine your light because I don't have a flashlight bright enough. I need you to look and see what's going on in my heart to test me, to search me, to figure it out and you need to create in me a new heart. You need to make me new. If you're going to change, it has to be God doing it. So we're, we're about halfway through so let me just kind of retrace our steps to this point. First we said resolutions are kind of a weak tool because they they only work in the short term, and they don't work for big stuff. And that we're not just the sum of our actions, but it comes from a heart within us, and that only God can see the heart, and so only God can change the heart. Now, what we could have done this morning is just taken a little bit longer to unpack all of that and kind of ended where, where we are right now. You know, you need God. You need God to help you change. That could be kind of a, a normal sermon. The reason I rushed through all of that material is because I wanted to reserve time to talk about a pretty serious problem with everything that we've just talked about up to this point. So let's say you, you, know, you buy all that, that it comes from your heart, your actions come from your heart, and you need God to fix your heart, and you, you invite God in, and he comes in and, and helps you change. Let's say you buy all that. The problem is, if that's true, then why is it, why is it not the case that spiritual people are uniformly better people than, than non-spiritual people? Because they're not. They're just not. I mean, empirically, we can say that they're not. Um, and, you know, sometimes they're worse. I mean, they, they can be just as cantankerous and mean and nasty. And, I mean, not talking generally, but even talking more specifically for a minute, let's say you're, you're asking yourself, okay, well, I'm sitting here at church on Sunday like I am many Sundays. I've prayed this prayer, search me, God. I've asked God to come in and change me. I don't feel a whole lot different Still, why hasn't it worked for me? What, what's kind of the block here? Why isn't it working? If you look at the, the next verse on your, your program, this is one of the most famous verses in, in all of Scripture. 
it says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And you see Paul here picking up on this, this same horticultural image, the fruit of the spirit. And he's saying what's, what's a spiritual life, a truly spiritual life is when a person invites God into their life. And then there's this kind of DNA graft and the tree becomes good. The tree that was bad becomes good because God's spirit is in you. There's an actual melding, and then the fruit that comes out is these things, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. But if that's not happening, then there, there must be something going wrong. You know, If you don't feel like that list describes you increasingly, then there must be something going wrong. And I think that the church has failed on this point in a pretty serious regard. And that is the church has, has failed to explain that this process of God's spirit coming into your life and helping change your heart, turn you into a different sort of person. This process is not like resolutions where it's kind of foolproof, but rather it's this, um, A, excruciatingly slow, and B, pretty tricky process that requires a lot of sustained attention and effort and wisdom and kind of um, problem-solving. A lot of trying to figure out how to make it work and cooperating with God in the process. And instead of explaining that, instead of saying that, instead of saying, you know, it's pretty tricky. This process of letting God come into your heart and change you is pretty tricky. Instead of saying that, what the church has done often instead is a little bit of false advertising. There's been this this sentiment almost of all you have to do is just ask. All you have to do is ask God's power to come into your life, and then it'll just happen. Then you'll just change. That's kind of the message that's sent. And we read these verses about a new life, and that's kind of the the message that gets out there. And once that message gets out there, that all you have to do is ask God to come into your life and you'll change, once that that idea is out there, once that is squared with most people's experience of not changing, that makes for kind of an awkward situation. So you've got what's being said, which is everybody's supposed to be changing, and then you've got the reality, which is I, I feel pretty much the same. And it makes it awkward and uncomfortable and painful. And there, there have been three different ways, historically, that people who have tried to be spiritual have responded to this, um, this disjunction between what's said and what's experienced. The first way is you just fake it. You know, you, it's said, I'm supposed to be loving. I'm supposed to, now that God's in my life, I'm supposed to be a loving person, and you aren't becoming more loving, so you just fake it. You learn to say kind of, loving-sounding things. You develop a special loving vocabulary. And um, this is why, you know, religious people have a reputation for being fake, because they are lots of times, because they know they're supposed to be more loving because God's in their life, but it's not happening. And so they have to find some way of, of squaring reality with what they've heard, and so they just fake it. The, the second way is um, you don't fake it, but you set up, instead of the, the rigorous ethical, moral, virtuous standards that you see in scripture for what a person's supposed to become, you set up these kind of uh, alternative proxy moral standards that are a little bit more attainable, and then you do those. So it works like, um, it, so a person, a spiritual person, a person who, who has God's spirit in their life is supposed to be pure, for instance. They're supposed to become a, a pure person. Well, that turns out to be pretty tough. So what you can do instead and say, well, look, I'm not becoming pure, but what I can do is, I can make a list of movies and books that I won't watch or read. And then that kind of makes me 
makes me feel pure somewhat. You know, I've got this line, at least, that separates me from everybody else. Or a person, um, a person who has God's spirit in their life is supposed to have self-control, supposed to increasingly have self-control. You say, well, that's not really happening, but what I can do is I can decide I'm not going to drink certain drinks. I'm not going to eat certain foods. And then it kind of looks like I have self-control. At least I've got a line separating me from everybody else. At least, you know, there's something that makes me look different. Essentially what the strategy is, is, well, if we can't be holy, we should at least be weird. We should at least find something to make us stand out. There's this great quote from uh, this author, Stephen Mosley. He's talking about this phenomenon this, of setting up these small false moralities. And he says, as a result, our morality calls out rather feebly. It whines from the corner of a sanctuary. It awkwardly interrupts pleasures. It mumbles excuses at parties. It shuffles along, out of step, and slightly behind the times. It's often regarded by our secular contemporaries as a narrow, even trivial pursuit. And that, I think, rings true in a lot of ways. You know, you become, um, in Mark Twain's phrase, a good man in the worst sense of the word. You know, it's just this, this game, this game of you set up moral things that you can win at because you can't really win at the things you're, you're really supposed to be good at. So the first thing you can do be, when, when you're faced with this disjunction between reality and what you've heard is supposed to happen, the first thing you can do is fake it. The second thing you can do is set up an alternative morality that's easier to attain. And then the third thing you can do, which might be the most noble but is still a dead end, is you can just keep trying and trying and trying and keep expecting different results somehow, even though you've tried lots of times before and failed. So the way this one works is, you know, it says be loving or a loving person is patient and kind or whatever. And so you say, well, I'm just going to try really hard today to be patient and kind and even pray. You know, you ask God each, each time you get into a situation that tries your patience, God, help me to be patient or help me to be kind right now. Um, and you know, it's, it just doesn't work. You know, you're, you're with your toddler child and you're feeling impatient. This prayer in the moment, God, help me to be patient. Um, for me, that increases my impatience. It does nothing. It does nothing for me. I'm just trying. God, help me to be patient. And it doesn't really do anything. You just, you just, and you try again the next day, and you fail again. You just try and try and fail. I, um, as another example, growing up, I was kind of a, a jerk to my little sister. I know, it's bad. Don't look at me like that. I, it's, it's, I'm, not, I'm not a good person. I'm not proud of it. I wasn't proud of it then. I felt really bad about it. I knew that, you know, I took my relationship with God pretty seriously. I thought of myself as a, as a spiritual person, even as, you know, an older kid and an adolescent. And, and it, it bothered me. It bothered me that I, that I couldn't stop being mean to my sister, you know, be, being annoyed by her, um, talking to her in a rude way. It, it really bothered me. And so I just, I kept trying. I kept trying and trying and trying, and I would even pray, you know, God, help me. And in each situation, I would I'd try again, and I would fail, and I, I mean, hundreds of times thought to myself, I'm going to be nice to my sister. Or dozens of times wrote down, you know, I am, I'm going to be kinder to my sister, or, I, you know, I'm not going to do these things that I've done before. And uh, on the day that I left for college, I will never forget uh, hugging my sister goodbye, getting in the car to drive cross country, and backing out of the driveway, and just starting to weep uncontrollably with only one thought out of my mind, which was, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. I never became a good big brother. It just never changed. I never changed. 
and I it was filled with regret. We're taught as Americans that you just, if you try, if you stay at something, you'll finally get it. And we're, and we're you know, then we hear this message as Christians, if you've got God in your life, you've got the power, you can make it happen. And it just doesn't always work that way. You try, and it doesn't always work. It doesn't always happen. So what's the answer? Why, you know, it doesn't work the way you think it's going to work. You can fake it. That's not good. You can set up these other false moralities. That's not good. You can try and try. That's not good either. What's the answer? The answer is what we were saying just a a few minutes ago. There is a path. There is a well-worn, time-tested path to personal transformation, toward becoming a different person with God's help. But it's really slow, and it's kind of tricky, and you have to really know what you're doing, have a lot of other people around you to help. You have to stay at it. It requires a lot of sustained attention. You say, well, wh- what's the difference between sustained attention and trying? I mean, wasn't that what you were just saying doesn't work? What's, what's this sustained attention? There's a difference between trying and training. So trying is continuing to, to try to do something that you just don't have the capacity to do and, and failing. So I could, I could try from today for the rest of my life to go and bench press 400 pounds and I won't be able to do it today, and I won't be able to do it at the end of my life. It's just n- nothing's going to happen. And I'm not going to get any closer to bench pressing 400 pounds by trying once a day. What's training? Training is forgetting about that end goal for a while and focusing on small things that you can do. Training is, is doing the push-ups. And that's the way that, that Scripture talks about personal transformation as well, this training imagery. Look on your program this is below where we were just a second ago from first Timothy. Paul says to one of his, uh, one of the guys he's mentoring, train yourself to be godly for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and life to come. He uses this same training metaphor in first Corinthians. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever training this process of these exercises and this kind of intentionality where you walk this path and invite god to help you along the way now don't misunderstand me i'm not saying you do it by yourself there's there's two ways to go wrong here the one way to go wrong is to think you can change all by yourself and you can't that's what we were saying at the beginning because what's determining most of the things about you is in your heart and only god can fix that only god can see there only god can work on you in your deepest places you can't do it by yourself that's the first way to go wrong the second way to go wrong is to think that somehow just by asking god once to come in and change you that's enough or somehow by just believing in the moment that you're going to have the strength to get through these situations that god's going to supply it supernaturally every time that that's enough. No, that's presumptuous. It's presumptuous to, to act as though when you get into a tough spot, God's going to supernaturally supply you with the strength every time. Maybe you will once, maybe you will one time out of 100, but he's not going to do it every time as a matter of course. The middle road, the high road toward personal transformation is to neither fall off on the left or on the right, but to rather say, I know that I can do this with God's help. I know that I can do this if I do, if I take it slowly, if I listen to the wisdom of those around me, if I'm serious about it, and if I invite God to meet me in the process, slowly I can make change. And it is slow. It's very, I mean, <laughs> the rate at which God changes people's hearts, you would think he had all the time in the world, you know? I mean, the, the, just the pace is, is painstaking for, for us. It is slow. 
But it happens. It happens. Personal transformation happens if you're willing to walk that path, that high road of putting in the time, investing the energy, but still asking him for help and asking him to change your heart. It can happen. And, and as it happens, then doing these good things that you've always wanted to do and known you should do, then it becomes kind of natural instead of a burden. Because that's the way most people feel about about good deeds, right? That it's a burden. Like, well, I know I, I should do this, but it's kind of a burden. I know I should act lovingly, but going around, I mean, life is hard enough, and then you add this other burden of acting lovingly all the time. It's not supposed to be like that. It's supposed to be God, as he teaches you and changes you, then those things just start to make sense, and it's kind of the natural way you live. It's not a burden. You look on the back of your program here, uh, below where we were just were, First John 3, 5, 3, for this is love of God, that we keep his commandments. So as we love God, we keep his commandments naturally, and his commandments are not burdensome in that case. For Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That's what we were just talking about, the training, the apprenticeship. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And then finally from John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So it's not doing it by yourself. God helps you. God helps you and comes into your life and changes you. And slowly these good things that you've always wanted to do, but it's been burdensome slowly becomes natural. So this morning's message, there's really no, there's no homework, there's nothing for you to do. It's really just kind of an advertisement for the next um, six weeks, advertisement for this series. And the idea of this series is to kind of be a, a, a training kit, a starter kit rather, for somebody who wants to walk this path, who wants to begin this lifelong journey of transformation with God's help. The only thing t- for this week, I guess, would just be these groups that uh, Jacob mentioned earlier that we're starting not not this week, but the following week. If you haven't been in a group before, or, or if you have and we're, we're thinking about not, I encourage you to participate in one of these groups. Um, we're not going to get to this till later in the series, but I think week six we'll talk about how the way that, that God almost always changes people, it, it's going to involve other people. It's going to involve other people surrounding you, helping you to change. It's not something you can do by yourself. So the groups are kind of the the lab, the actual workout for what we're talking about on Sunday. You're you're putting yourself at a disadvantage if you don't have both going for you. Let's pray. Father, we want to change. We want to become different people. We see our shortcomings. And we also know that there's lots of shortcomings that we don't see. We know there's lots of things about us that, that we don't see and other people see. And it's embarrassing and it makes us feel afraid and makes us feel like um, like we're missing something. God, I ask that as we open ourselves up to your truth over the next seven weeks, as we consider beginning this process of walking a path, a long, slow, difficult, but rewarding path toward personal transformation with your help, I ask that you encourage us. I ask that your spirit would come and help us like you promised. I ask that we would have a 
an overwhelming sense of your power and your love as we take steps toward you. I ask that you would give us um, the words to encourage each other and to support each other. It's in your name we pray. Amen.